title is, in fact, uh, Frankenstein and the Gospel. Uh, so uh, Dana and I uh, love to read, and we're in separate book clubs, but led by the same really wonderful teacher, and we often read the same books. And during COVID, Dana and I will definitely read the same books, and sometimes we read aloud to each other. Well, one of the books we've read is COVID. Oh, COVID. <laughs> Very good book, by the way, but I'm getting rid of it as fast as you can. Uh, so one of the books we read uh, was Frankenstein. And Dana read it first, and I said, Frankenstein? Uh, because if you're like me, my only connection with Frankenstein were the movies that had the title. Boris Karloff was in the first one in 1931, and the movies have nothing to do with the book. They are they so depart from the book that they're it's it's, it's crazy. So uh, I'm going to talk. But I have found out um, that no matter what the culture is. God has embedded aspects of the gospel in every culture. And the more you travel and the more you read, you realize, my goodness, people think about the gospel without knowing they think about the gospel all the time. And Mary Shelley, who wrote... ...in England, and yet, like many atheists, she was very preoccupied with God. In fact, many atheists, atheists think more about God than Christians do. It's just negatively. And so Dana encouraged me to read Frankenstein. And when I read it, the gospel just jumped out at me. Uh, but, not, but you have to know the gospel in order to see the gospel. I'm not saying, and I'm quite sure, that Mary Shelley was not trying to slip the gospel in under our noses. Uh, she may not have really realized that she has the gospel embedded in her book, but it's there. And the more I see movies, the more books I read, I go, my goodness, the gospel is, is all around us. Well, in the novel, um, the, so the movie versions, use the name Frankenstein, but Frankenstein in the movies is the creature. No. In the book, it's Dr. Victor Frankenstein. He is the scientist who created the creature. And in the book, the creature is never given a name. The creature is simply called the monster. And so the whole book is about the relationship between Dr. Frankenstein and the monster. So when you hear me talk about Frankenstein, I'm going to try to remember to always say Dr. Frankenstein. Don't get confused and think that I'm talking about the monster. The monster or the creature is simply called the monster. When I say Frankenstein, I'm talking about Dr. Victor Frankenstein. So um, 
Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, is a scientist, and he believes that he's destined to do great things. And one of the things he becomes obsessed with is creating life. So he's at this university in Europe, and he starts pulling together different things and reading, and he goes into his lab, and bit by bit, he creates this inanimate being. And on some stormy night, he determines the last step about how to bring the creature to life. And he brings the creature to life. And the first thing the creature does upon seeing his creator, Dr. Frankenstein, is to smile. Dr. Frankenstein's reaction is to look at this monster in disgust and loathing at what he has done, and he runs out of the room. And the rest of the relations, the rest of the book is about this toxic, codependent relationship between Dr. Frankenstein, who is abhorred by his creation, and the creature, the monster, who is looking for his creator to have a relationship with him. Well, when he realizes that Dr. Frankenstein hates him, loathes him, and doesn't want anything to do with him, the creature becomes vengeful. And he vows that he is going to kill every person Dr. Frankenstein loves. And he does. And when he does, and the Dr. Frankenstein, after the first death, realizes what is happening, he becomes as angry toward the monster as the monster is toward Dr. Frankenstein. He becomes as vengeful toward the monster as the monster is vengeful toward Dr. Frankenstein. And now Dr. Frankenstein sets out to figure out how to kill this monster. Because the monster's nine feet tall and abnormally strong, Dr. Frankenstein can't fight him. And so finally one day, the monster confronts him and is actually, for a monster, he's pretty eloquent. <laughs> and he says, you have created me and there's no one like me and I'm alone and you don't want me. Make me a wife. Because he's been able to watch society hidden because when he first came out in public, everybody had the same reaction that Dr. Frankenstein had. So he's learned to live in the shadows. But he has observed from the shadows that human beings exist in relationship, in community. So he goes to Dr. Frankenstein and says, I won't kill anymore if you create a mate for me. And Dr. Frankenstein agrees. And he starts putting together a female version of the monster. But he is so disgusted with what he's done with the first creature that he, in the middle of creating the second creature and right before bringing her into life, he reneges on his promise to the monster. And the monster screams in anger and horror and begins killing again.
And the rest of the book is about the monster trying to kill Dr. Frankenstein's loved ones and Dr. Frankenstein seeking the monster in order to destroy him. So I'm gonna quote a little from um, the book. And this is from chapter five. How can I, this is Dr. Frankenstein speaking. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set. And he goes on to make further descriptions about this, the ugliness that he has created. And then later in the book in chapter 17, the monster tells Victor, you must create a female for me with whom I can live in the interchange of those sympathies necessary for my being. And Dr. Frankenstein agrees, but the monster threatens him and says, if you don't do this for me, I will work at your destruction, nor finish until I desolate your heart so that you shall curse the hour of your birth. The monster also pleads his case saying, my creator, make me happy and do not deny my request. The creature further promises to move far away from continental Europe off to a place in South America. Well, Dr. Frankenstein doesn't fulfill his promise. The monster wanted three things from his creator. He wanted his creator to love him. He wanted a mate. And he wanted a sense of belonging, a, a community in which he fit in and would have a role. Now, the gospel is all in that story. Because in contrast, God has shown his love for us in so many ways. I'm just going to pick out a few. First, he created us in his image and likeness. God could have just created us with no likeness toward him at all. But he deliberately created us in his image and likeness. And God did not have to do this. One of the things we learn about God in his sovereignty is he does what he wants, only what he wants, and always what he wants. And our goal as Christians is to move our wants in line with his, to move our will in line with his. So the first way God shows his love is that he creates us in his image and likeness, and then in looking at us, he pronounces that creation of man and woman very good completely opposite to Dr. Frankenstein. God approved his creation and was deeply pleased with it. The second thing God did, 
He created us with every means of happiness and fulfillment. He places Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. God did not have to do this. It was enough that he created us, but he does more. It's enough that he creates us in his image and likeness, but he does more. It's enough that he places Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. He did not have to do that, but he did. Um, Third, God, so, and think of this. He said, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to multiply, and I want you to become great. God gives man purpose, mission, meaning, and the means of fulfilling those things. Listen, God did not have to do that. And if he didn't, he would still be God. But he, he just keeps giving and giving. Third way God shows his love to us. He created us with full knowledge that we would sin and turn away from him. Let me read from Psalm 139, 16. My wife introduced me to this psalm about five years ago, and it has just grabbed my heart. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what the psalmist is saying is before God even created what you and I call night and day. He already had Connie and Bobby and Drew, Berkeley, Berkeley, already in mind. He had already seen all of your days stretched out in time. And before you could do anything, he set his love upon you. A famous English preacher one said this, he quipped, I'm so glad that God chose me before he saw me because if he'd waited till he saw me, he might not have wanted me. Listen, looking down the corridors of time and knowing that Bill McCurin would be a sinner, God could have said, I am not going to create him. But God created me anyway, and he did not have to do that. The fourth way that God shows his love for us is he delights in us. Let me quote from Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Listen, God created us, created us in his image and likeness, put us in a perfect environment, gave us meaning and purpose and value, none of which he had to do 
and all of which he did. And now when it comes to delighting in us, he did not have to do that. God, out of his sovereign will, looked at us and said, I delight in this. Well, the fifth way. God created us with a perfect solution to our willfulness and sin. You and I use the shorthand of the gospel, but it's set forth in Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. God did not have to do this. I mean, God could have said, okay, Craig, you're a sinner. I am going to wipe away your sin. But you and I don't have a relationship. That's called expiation in legal terms. I wipe out your sins, but you and I do not have a relationship. God does so much more than that. If he had done just that, we would have been, we should have praised him with nothing else, just that. But he, he comes and he says, not only am I going to pay the price for every one of your sins, but you and I are going to be in relationship for eternity. He did not have to do that. This is more than we ever could have expected or hoped. And we still would have been obligated to praise him for what he had already done, and yet he did this anyway. And then, as if this is not enough, God created us in community. Think of this. God created Adam, and he could have said, I'm done. I'm going off to North Infinity. You're on your own. But he didn't. He didn't abandon Adam. He fellowshiped with Adam. Listen, if God had not done that, he would still be entitled to all our praise. He did not have to do this, but he did it. And then God gave Adam a mate. Adam, true to being a man, did not realize he needed a mate. So I'm going to read from Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. For Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man 
and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord gave, the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So here in Frankenstein, the monster says from his own realization, I'm alone, I need a mate, create one for me. And Dr. Frankenstein promises to do so and then reneges. But in the gospel account, man is whistling through the garden, oblivious to his need, and God creates a woman and brings her to Adam. Listen, if God had just created him, placed him in the garden, perfect for everything, and given him purpose and mission, that's more than Adam could ever have expected, more than we ever could expect it. But God says, I'm going to give you a mate. God did not have to do that. And this union between Adam and Eve became the basis for human community under God. Think of that. God did not have to have us exist in community where we enjoy the fellowship of other people. And if he had not done that, we could have nothing to argue about. He has no obligation to us whatsoever. So one of the questions that, one of the theological issues that the book Frankenstein wrestles with is this. Does the creator have any obligation to his creation? And if so, how and why? And so in the book, Dr. Frankenstein has no obligation to the creature. And look at the disastrous result. For us, God doesn't have any obligation to us. He is a debtor to no man. But out of the fullness of his being, he says, I'm going to create you. I'm going to create you in my image and likeness. I'm going to delight in you. I'm going to give you purpose and meaning. I'm going to give you a mate, and I'm going to place you in community of like people. He did not have to do any of this, but he did it out of his sovereign will. Um, but there is more. I mean, think of this. God adopted us and made us part of his family. God made us joint heirs with his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who owns the universe. So let me read from Romans 8. For you, speaking to the body of believers, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Listen, God did not have to do that, and if he didn't, he would still be entitled to all our praise. So, not only does God 
save us from our sins through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And not only does he say, I want to be in eternal relationship with you, it's not just that I save you and then abandon you. You and I are going to be together as a family. So not only does he impute the righteousness to us of Christ, I mean, that, that's enough. It's like a man who is, comes into uh, the home of a wealthy man and he's filthy. And the wealthy man takes his best clothing and drapes it on this homeless bum. That is imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. If God had just said, okay, I am going to impute the righteousness of my son to you, but I'm not going to change any other thing about you, that would have been enough. We would still be filled with praise that he is imputing righteousness to us. But God says, I am going to put my spirit within you. I'm not only going to clothe you with the righteousness of Christ, I'm going to build in you his righteousness so that you are clean on the inside and not just the appearance of it on the outside. God did not have to do that. That came out of his own divine mind. I remember in growing up in Chicago, especially in June, July, and August when it's hot and muggy and I'm over at Big Mama's house and we played outside all day. It was glorious. But we always had to come home for dinner time and Big Mama would always say almost the same thing. Go in the bathroom, take off those filthy clothes, and take a bath. And in those days, we couldn't get enough hot water, so Big Mama always had a kettle of hot water because she's gonna make sure she would burn that dirt out of you. All right? And she would pour it in, in the tub, and she would say, I'm going to come in and clean your ears. And we said, no, no, Big Mama, I, I can, no. I'm gonna clean your ears. But when I got out of the tub, I looked in the tub and you could not see the bottom of the tub. It was so filthy and I felt so good and clean. Big Mama didn't have to do that. When God clothed us in his righteousness, he didn't have to clean us, literally clean us, so that we felt clean, so that the things that weigh down on our soul about what we've done about how we've treated people, the things we've said or failed to say, all of that, God just cleans all that stuff out. He didn't have to do that. And if he hadn't, if he just draped us in the righteousness of Christ, he would have been entitled to all our praise. But he cleans us from the inside out so that we not only have this sense of righteousness, we have the righteousness of Christ in us. He changes our desire for things so we begin to want the things that God wants. And we know that one day we will awake and we shall be like him. We shall see him 
as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So let's look now, go back to our story, the, the transformation of the monster. The creator's rejection of and disgust with his own creation made the monster a true monster. He was physically a monster before, and now he's morally a monster. He is vengeful, hateful, dedicated to the destruction of his master and everything his master loves. With us, it's very different. We are the monster. God created us in love and we turned our faces away. We fled from God, we hid from him. The monster sought to destroy everyone Dr. Frankenstein loved. But we crucified the father's only begotten son who came for one purpose, to save us. In Mary Shelley's book, the, the creator fled from his creation in disgust and loathing. In contrast, God became flesh and it said he tabernacled with us. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. In Shelley's book, the creator hid from the con from the uh, monster. In contrast, Adam and Eve hid from God when they sinned. The monster destroyed everyone his creator loved out of vengeance. In contrast, our sinfulness drove us to crucify the father's only begotten son who came to die for us. The monster hated his creator for rejecting him and failing to provide for his deepest needs. In contrast, Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. The Judean leaders hated Jesus because he nullified their authority. The Roman leaders were callously indifferent to Jesus because only military and political power were real to them. Our deepest needs are satisfied only in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Think of this every time you take communion. At the end of the book, both Dr. Frankenstein and the monster die. The monster blames Dr. Frankenstein for creating him and causing him to commit terrible murders Dr. Frankenstein takes no responsibility and blames the monster for his own evil. Both are full of regret and both are unrepentant. Each blames the other for the evil. But Jesus takes on all our guilt. He shoulders all our sin upon the cross 
for each and every one who will receive his salvation. He does it voluntarily. He does it willingly. And he does it from a depth of passion for us that we can only begin to imagine. God did not have to do any of that. But he does. And he doesn't say to us, pay me back. He just says, I have more to give. All I want is all of you because I have given you all of me. I'm just amazed at the book of Frankenstein because in it, I see the glory of God and what he has done for us out of love. So I was talking about this to Dana and she said, oh, just a minute. And she ran into her study and she came back with a book of hymns called, I think it's called Hymns of Christ. And one of them is Arise, My Soul, Arise. It's a celebratory song. Don't worry, where's Julia? Julia, I am not going to sing this song. Uh, let me tell you why I say that. Normally, the Hopkins family sits in front of us and we sit directly behind them. Um, I butcher tunes. Julia would listen to me sing and sweet Julia would turn around and look like this. Every Sunday, Julia would turn around and go. So I'm not going to sing the song. I'm just going to read the lyrics. And, and as I read it, just think of what God has done for us, not of out of obligation, nothing that he was required to do. He did it because he loves us. Arise, my soul, arise. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off the guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They, for, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you have embedded the truth of the gospel throughout every culture. We can see it in films and books and songs, but of course we see it most clearly in the Bible which you have given to us, in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful that all of this you did freely out of love and did not have to do any of it. You are such a great God and entitled to all our worship. Amen.